Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Now, I've been having a pretty fun time um, hosting this radio show all year, but one of the more exciting things that I get to do sometimes is talk to friends, talk to some of my favorite people in the world, and that's what I'm going to get to do today. Um, I was debating with her before we just went on air if I should give an intro about how I met her, all the different ways I met her um, before I brought her on or while she was on the air, but I think it's going to be more fun this way. So without further ado, let's welcome <laughs> Wendy Shalit, uh, author and writer and really uh, modesty expert uh, on Jim's <laughs> Good morning, Wendy. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing about modesty experts. <laughs> you, well, you are. But okay, so... It so might you be a bit so of an now, oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> How so, are you doing, Allison? I'm, I'm doing well. How about you? Thank God. No complaints. I'm really excited to be talking to you. I know. I, we've had After some fun. After all like, these years. <laughs> I, what'd you say? After all these years. Exactly. We've had some fun late night conversations. So now, just before we went on air, I asked if you remember when we met, and you had said Fordham, which happened only a few years ago because, what, my daughter must have just been born. That was maybe six or seven years ago. So I will tell you exactly how we met or the first time I found out about you because I have kind of a strange memory, and this will probably shock you. So back in 1997, so I guess you were just a few years into your book at that point because you published it in, is it 93? Is that when Return to Modesty was first published? Well, you know, I, your memory is not so weird because 1993 um, was significant. Um, I think I graduated from, um, from high school then, <laughs> but oh, no, I didn't write that. I wrote it right after college. So it was published in, I finished it in 98 and then um, 99 it came out. Okay, fine. All right. So shoot. So my memory's not as good. Okay, fine. So I'm going to try to like... Okay, so maybe it went in this order. I'm going to do a little bit differently. So it must be, so it came out in 1999. Is that what you said? It came out in 1999? Yes. Okay, fine. So it's like this. I was in seminary in 1998-99. I took a year off in the middle of college, and I had a rabbi there, Rabbi Shuren and Majesh Rachel, who found this book. He had no idea it was written by someone Jewish, someone who was, you know, had become more observant himself, herself. And he oh. was talking about it all the time, was so excited about this book. And it was the most exciting, amazing thing that this was, you know, now out in popular culture. And you had quite a big, like, media, you know, fanfare when the book came out. Am I correct? There was a bit of a fanfare, yes. <laughs> I was I was attacked. Um, okay, I guess it's a, a lot of people, you know, but I also got a lot of support. So kind of <laughs> but both you're on today's show, right? I'm saying you got a good amount of press. I th I think so. I think so. I mean, I mean, yeah. not as much as you've gotten. Um, we can debate <laughs> about that. Still work. to get published in the Wall Street so. Journal. Um, so fine. So then I came back to school the next year. I was, I guess, a sophomore at Columbia University. You came to speak at Columbia in, two th in, in 1999 or 2000. Does that make sense? Right, right, right. That was okay. the first time. You're right. Yeah, so that's, but I didn't you. meet you yet then. And then later that year, I met you at a Gateway Shabbaton, and we started schmoozing. And then I started seeing you in random places. I saw you at a movie theater, and then I saw you in Paris on the middle of the street. And, like, every time I met you, I'd be like, hi, Wendy, it's me again. And every time you looked at me like I was, like, this crazy fangirl. Does this sound familiar at all? <laughs> You're like, not at all. Okay, and then um, you started. Oh, you mean I thought you were stalking me? <laughs> no, I was not purposely stalking you. I just kept ending up in different places in the world. I feel like the Paris thing was pretty cool that we were on the same street yeah. in Paris. Um, that That's was so my funny. It was meant to be. We were meant to be friends. Now, totally. I have to ask you before we start talking about me, because I'm with myself all the time, so you're more interesting to me <laughs> okay. because I already know what I think. I've just been fascinated. I wanted to ask you, 
when you had that interview, I don't know if it was a, with a producer or a writer, I don't want to say the name, but do you know what I'm talking about? He was I, saying that portrayal, portrayals of Orthodox Jews as weirdos in TV were kind of justified because Orthodox Jews have a critique of modernity. Yes, yes. So I, I recently thought that was, I uh, have had to, a chat. I, I wanted to get your opinion on that. I thought that was so fascinating. So yeah. in other words, negative portrayals on TV are kind of getting them back a little bit. <sighs> Yeah, so um, so I, I had well, a conversation they, had with a producer of, of a, a major uh, I just that television that was a show, the television show is on the blog right now. Um, I wanted to know, now this is a guy who has done a, a decent amount of studying with some Orthodox rabbis, so he has done some exploration, which I, I really respect. Um, his feeling was if someone has a hateful view, which I guess he believes a lot of Orthodox Jews have hateful views, then they're fair game to bash and, you know, criticize. And so my perspective is that um, what, I, what I hope, you know, um, Orthodox Jews end up believing is that while there are some challenging beliefs we have to have, at the same time, we're supposed to be not judgmental. We're supposed to be compassionate. We're supposed to believe that, you know, judging is left to God. And that although there are some opinions or, you know, some beliefs within, uh, you know, Judaism about premarital sex or about homosexuality, things like that, that it shouldn't be for us to condemn the other person. We can hold to those mm -hmm. standards for ourselves, but not sit in judgment of others. And I said to him, like, why can't we, why can't you show a character that sort of lives that tension wrought life where on one right. hand they, you know, uphold the beliefs of the Torah and believe they're unchanging. On the other hand, they're not sitting around in judgment. And he right. didn't really think that Orthodox Jews like that exist. So here's uh, the thing. I like, that was, yeah, no, I thought that was a great point. But I was, I was looking at it from just a logical point of view because I was a philosophy major. Me too. And I just thought his point... Um, because Orthodox Jews have a critique of modernity, to me that was fascinating because I also have a critique of modern dating culture, right? Right. Or, or lack thereof. Right. And I was asking myself, you know, would I be justified to make a parody of this culture, um, make it worse than it is? No, I actually feel an obligation to be so, so careful when I cite a study or when I'm portraying this culture to portray it accurately. Right. I mean, I see it as, as really a call homer that if, if you have a critique of a, of, a, of a society, you have to be all the more careful to portray it accurately. So to me, it's, it's, it struck me as a non sequitur, but I thought it's, it's just fascinating that you're bringing that to light. That these, you, know, you know, I these think the challenge is that sort of the, the worst of the community ends up getting people's attention. So, you know what I'm saying? Like right. all the people that are kind of living happily and quietly and, you know, with kindness and not judging, there's, there's not articles written about people like that. Um, I passed by um, a Hasidish man when I was coming back from Australia a few weeks ago, sitting on a plane next to a woman who wasn't his wife, just quietly and, you know, uneventfully. And I wrote on Facebook, it's a shame that like non-eventful events are not covered in the media and a bunch of people liked it and a bunch of people were angry at me. Why would you want the media to cover nothing happening? And it's just, I don't know <laughs> what the solution is, but it's a shame that only the people that make a whole big fuss that don't represent the vast majority of people are the ones that we hear about. Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, I think it's also a little bit of case, not, not to disagree with you, but I think that you can disagree. the complexity of it, you know, how we've all been affected by the private versus public distinction kind of collapsing. 
Yeah. And I think that we now we have this idea that if there's more eyes on something, it makes it somehow more valuable. Sure. And I think it's very hard. I mean, I have to remind myself also, <laughs> but just because it's, you know, it's not on Facebook, it, it doesn't, or it doesn't get the news, it's still, it's still valuable and it's still beautiful and it might even be more so. You know, for sure. No, you wrote that, that you had a picture that you didn't take of your daughter because there was something special. I 100% agree with that. But what I would say is that I think that eyeballs on something we have as a society, at least my entire life, we have valued that we have, you know, um, treasured that it was one of the reasons why as a child I wanted to be famous. It was I think it's one of the reasons why have you ever noticed when there's a film crew out, people can't help but just turn their heads backwards as they walk, they, they rubberneck at film crews um, because right. there's a fascination of like, where will that be and who will be watching it? And there's just this value around, you know, being, having your name in lights, your, you know, face on the big screen. Um, but do you think that that is a good, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a good thing or? It, or oh, not? it's a horrible thing. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we, we filmed a video, um, I mean, bef before Jew and the City started, maybe the very beginning of Jew and the City started, um, I was doing some freelance work for H.com. We filmed a funny Hanukkah video in Times Square. We were trying to teach about the mitzvah of Pirsume Nisa, of publicizing the miracle of the you know oil burning longer. And we showed it the wrong way first. So the wrong way of doing it was screaming in Times Square, you know, on a soapbox out of a megaphone, there was a great miracle, a great miracle. So as right. we're doing this, of course, the rubberneckers are rubberneckers. And a woman takes her young child and pushes her towards us. And she says, please put her in your film. And I'm thinking, lady. <laughs> You don't even know what this is or where it's going to be. Like, stop being so eager. <laughs> For sure. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think even if you take the best case, sometimes if you take, like, the best case scenario, it just proves the point. Um, but the whole, you know, Kardashian type of uh, effect on the public sphere. But even, like, the ways that we've been affected in subtle ways but are nonetheless life-changing. Like, I read this Facebook post about recently about a friend's husband's wonderful back rubs and um, all the, you know, how he's wonderful in this way and that way. And, you know, it's a kind of sentiment. It was very nice, but it's a kind of sentiment that would have been really nice to convey privately. So right. the question to me is, why wasn't it conveyed privately, right? Right. Again, like right. we so have this concept that the, if, if more people are seeing it, it's, it's, it's somehow more valuable, but it's not really true. And we need that privacy to to nurture real intimacy and real relationships. And when such personal things are in the public realm, they can even do harm, even if we can't measure the harm or we can't see it. And it made me think, like, what about someone who's not so happy with their husband, okay? I mean, let's say he's an okay guy, but he doesn't give such great massages, and now she, like, feels worse about him, right? For sure. Because no, it's, um, yeah, I think there's the, you know, the face bragging and the, yeah, I, one of my goals on Facebook is to just, like, amuse people. Like, if I can be funny and, like, put a smile on someone's face, I think that's pretty much, as long as it's not at someone else's expense, um, right. that's a nice way. I see you also, like, you know, we'll say funny things your kids said. I feel like that's always fair game and, like, whatever, as long as it doesn't go, like, overboard. You can obviously overshare about right. your kids. I don't post any pictures of my kids, though. Right, so I don't because... post public pictures. of my Only to my friends I'll post, not, yeah. not in a public way, right? Um, yeah. I, I have uh, demarcated 
um, between public and, and private. Okay, no, I did. My, my daughters have joined me in a video in the last year, but only because they were at an age now where they feel like they wanna, they're going to join the family business one day, God willing. So I had to get them started. <laughs> but for, for the younger ones, we have a video that we did of my six-year-old son a few years back. And I purposely did not get mo most of his face in the video. I got sort of just like small angles and like the, like the sort of top half of it. I did it in a way so that... Um, it wasn't, he couldn't be like recognized somewhere because I, I did want to, um, you know, give him that, that space. So I was going to ask you, so in the 15 yeah. years since Return to Modesty came out, you say you have a new yeah. intro now, it's been re-released. Re um, is, this, is this the difference, what we're talking about right now, this, this social media sharing? This didn't exist back in 1999, I guess, or 2000. This is, this is the difference right now right. That, that everyone has is sharing wow. the most intimate yeah. parts of their I mean, life. I noticed about, it was about 20 years ago, I noticed when I was in university, that the only acceptable brand of relationships, the only kind that was deemed healthy by our cultural arbiters was if it's public, the whole, if you've got it, flaunt it. And if you're not flaunting it, then you're not comfortable with your, your body. And, and the more casual you treated relationships, the happier um, people we're with you. And it just all didn't ring true to me. Yeah. And I wanted to build the case for an alternative, just, you know, getting back to basics. The fact that we care is a beautiful thing. And the fact that we have emotions, that makes us human. And let's integrate that into relationships instead of valuing the most jaded or the most promiscuous, right? So I, so I wrote this book when I graduated, which traces the history of modesty and, and how it could be relevant. Um, but it's interesting when it came out 16 years ago, you know, people were, were thinking, what, you know, modesty, do, you know, what were my intentions? Um, they didn't really get why I wanted to, I was proposing talking about this word again, but now with social media and all the pressure to put what's private out there, I think a lot of parents are seeing it's really urgent to talk to kids now about modesty and setting boundaries, and that's why I wrote a new introduction to the book, kind of bringing it up to date. It's not just... Way. But I think a lot of people who attacked me at the time, now that they're raising kids of their own, they're seeing it from a different perspective. Hmm. Have you, and we've have also you seen that, you know, what's troubling the adult industry taking over the public sphere, and we're seeing a lot of cases of abuse now of younger girls, and incredibly, judges have said, well, you know, she looks older than her age, so it's okay. And we're not talking about in India, we're talking about wow. in Montana or Sweden, right? Huh. And we're seeing that it's actually not the patriarchy, as we've been told, that is a, that's oppressing girls. It's, it's really the lack of appreciation for innocence, the lack of boundaries, the lack of respect for modesty. So just trying to get people to talk about these concepts again and, and feel comfortable talking about them instead of always saying that they're just oppressing women because we've seen without modesty that young women and young men are much more oppressed, which is to say they can't attain what they want in this world in terms of their personal relationships. Have you um, heard from people who have read the book and have taken a new course, uh, course in life? charted a new course, there we go, after reading your book, that they, 15 years later... Well, it's, that what makes me the happiest, I, I will say, is, you know, the girls who, who read the book when they were in university or in, in high school, and now they're married, and they say it gave them the confidence to be true to what they really wanted. 
and to say no to the wrong people so they could eventually say yes to the right person and they send me pictures of their kids and everything. That makes me really happy, definitely. Um, and yeah, it, it, it means a lot. Um, I think that the more, there's all these pockets of, of resistance now and really almost a, a pro-modesty movement and it's really, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting mm. that, it's, that it's happening because 15 years ago, um, that wasn't the case. So what do you think? Do you have any recommendations to protect kids from the oversharing from the, you know, we're at a stage now, our oldest are 11 and 9 and we have a filter on a laptop and we try putting on the iPad, but it sort of got rid of all type of surf surfing. So yeah, the um, iPad just, is really tricky to lock down. Yeah. The iPad yeah, is right. very tricky. <laughs> Maybe we need an app for that. <laughs> um, I think filters are, yeah, filters are really important. I, I find in general, I think people are very ignorant because they didn't grow up with this technology at yeah. the negative influences. And we have all these helicopter parents that would rather, you know, die than allow their kids to play in the park, you okay. know, for 10 minutes. Um, if they're not right there yet, they will let them surf the web and, you know, be seeing the most horrible things and being supervised by these purveyors of, you know, um, you know, very bad things. And so I think that's, that's an enormously important issue. Um, but I think also at the opposite spectrum, as, you as people are more observant, is also at the same time feeling comfortable talking about these issues because I think Judaism has such a wholesome attitude towards male-female relationships yeah. And I think it's something we can really hold our heads high about. And Judaism has really a lot to say and to help others in this respect. And it's always sad to me when I hear about a girl. Very often I get questions from girls. Uh, I'm not going to say, <laughs> you know, in what school, but let's say they're, um, the, the teachers will um, they'll get the idea that they're going to get in trouble if they ask certain questions. In yeah. one city, I spoke to a more religious school, let's say, in an in a alternative school. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is the alternative school, the girls asked really great questions. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand why this was the so-called alternative school. Then I got to the more religious school, and there were no questions. Mm -hmm. And this was, this was a long time ago when I didn't really understand all these sociological distinctions. Sure. I, just asked the, I just asked the teachers to leave, <laughs> if they could please leave. I got the idea that maybe the girls were not comfortable. And in yeah. fact, as soon as the teachers left, these religious girls like flooded the stage, and they asked me the identical questions that the girls in the alternative school were asking me. Hmm. And really the only difference between this more religious school and the so-called alternative school was that the girls understood that if they asked certain questions, they'd get sent to the alternative school. <laughs> so, Maybe they want to go um, to the alternative school. And I don't think that's really, I don't think that that's the Jewish approach. Because, yeah. you know, it's, it's really interesting, but I got, to, I got to modesty in the first place because my parents raised me to be an independent thinker. Yeah. And to have an internal sense of self. They never told me how to dress. Uh, but they taught me to question 
conventional wisdom. And I grew up reformed, but I always questioned it. So when I, went, when I got to university and there was all the drinking and hooking up and I could see that people were not happy, I, I never wanted to participate. Me neither. Yeah, so I just, having that internal set, a sense of self, that's what it's, that's what it's about. And I think um, being open, you know, not being afraid of questions, especially in this area, kind of inoculates uh, people, so to speak, because let's say they, they're seeing people holding hands or whatever in public and they don't, you know, they're seeing these casual relationships and maybe they're idealizing them. And they don't know necessarily the pain that's behind a lot of these relationships, these casual relationships. So, um, so that's what I talk about. And uh, so I, think, I think the whole thing about getting back, sort of back to the orthodox point before, the school where you couldn't ask questions, I think unfortunately so that exists in more places than it should. And I think that that's what the community has become known to be when I completely agree we should be a place where we can talk and openly discuss things. I was at Supercuts with my daughters on Sunday just trying to get them a darn haircut when all of a sudden the song comes on there, you know, mixer, uh, take off your clothes, get on your back. And I'm like standing there like, oh my God, why? shut this off. And like no one else is noticing. And I'm looking at my daughters, are you listening to this? And so we discussed the birds and the bees at a young age in my house because my mom did and I was sort of freaking out like how do I do this because I'm religious and she wasn't and I spoke to a bunch of people and I basically was told like there's a range of opinions do what you feel comfortable with so we did deal with it at a young age so they know thankfully my daughter didn't even notice that what the song was about but um but it is very important for me I posted on Facebook about this it's a dilemma my mom was like did you talk to them that's what daddy and I did with you so I was also raised in a you know a place where we had open conversation and open discussions and um, it's interesting, like, they raised us, I think, with kind of traditional values, but always discussing this stuff from a young age. And for some reason in Hebrew school, like in a place where I never once heard the word modesty, I was raised in the conservative mm -hmm. movement. In fifth grade, someone came in to talk to the class about sex ed and safe sex. And my mom, they suggested get your kids a bowl of condoms, just keep in the cabinet so your kids have them, you know, for when they want them. My mom was like, oh, yeah, we'll do this for you. And my sisters and I were like, absolutely not. We do not want something like that. Like, because we had heard that, that my mother, you know, waited till she got married. And so without even trying to tell us to do it that way, being, a, in, you know, in a household where that was the model that she had set, just sort of, you know, as an aside and then just having open conversations without ever saying it. My parents weren't big drinkers, but because, you know, they drank, you know, occasionally in an appropriate way, um, we never wanted to, to go crazy with either. It was never this thing off limits, but we were allowed to have that communication and that openness. So I think, um, I think it's what works. I hope it's what works. <laughs> Interesting. That's very, it's, I, I, I know I love to hear different perspectives on this because it's an issue that, you know, I struggle with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think while it's really important to answer questions in a sophisticated way that lets children understand the beauty of the Jewish approach to relationships, I also feel very strongly there's a value in protecting innocence. So you're not a fan possible. of talking so about the, the I believe like when a child asks a question, to answer it, giving the least amount of information that's necessary to answer the question. Uh -huh. So do you have an, in your mind an ideal time that you would share this information and, or just sort of like a little bit? I think bit it really time? depends on the child. I mean, there, my, um, my son came home, I think it was when he was like, when he was six. Um, 
and they had that project where they put the plant, they, they put the bean in the jar, and then mm-hmm. it, sprouts, it sprouts a plant. You, did you kids ever do something like that? We did, yes, we, and we always kill it because like, if, we look, if we look at a plant the wrong way, it dies. So. <laughs> it didn't sprout. And so he said, I understand that, he said, I understand that Hashem makes the plant grow, but at the same time, Mama, I had to put the bean in the jar. So, and I was expecting at the time, and he asked me a very direct question. He thought, so he said, I, I understand it's a nace, and Hashem makes the child grow, but who put the baby bean? <laughs> Literally, he asked me a very specific question. Maybe you disagree. Um, but, I did, but I answered it without giving him all the information. Mm-hmm. Um, I answered it. You know, I said it is, I said you know, Hashem makes a special way mm-hmm. of, of uh, that, that a baby grows. And it has a little bit to do with Papa because otherwise he would feel left out and then change yeah. the subject. Right. That's it. <laughs> because right. at six years old, he didn't have to know everything, right? Even though he had the intellect to, to ask these questions. So I think, and at 10 years old, he's still extremely innocent. And that, I think there's a beauty in that. So I think it really depends on the child, and the child might have the intellect to be asking the questions, but not necessarily be emotionally ready for all the details. You know what I'm saying? I do hear that. So, I, so my mother's theory was she wanted to tell us about abuse at a young age. She was watching like all the talk shows, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, Donahue, and she needed to warn us, which I would think was good. Great, um, but before she could tell us about like negative touching, she wanted us to make sure that we understood that this was a positive thing first. Um, and so that's why she sat us down probably at like five years old to give us very rudimentary, nothing too detailed, um, mm-hmm. just a sort of the basic, uh, you know, info. It's interesting. I never my, knew my you were never so liberated asked in that direct way. Like I was actually expecting and I was hoping I'd be like, just ask about this bump here. Just ask where you see me puking every day. And then my daughter asked me when she was five, hey, why are some eggs eggs and some eggs chicken? And I was like, ah, oh, that's a great start to a conversation about why this baby got in my belly. So... What I, what the, this Rebbiton that I spoke to who had interviewed you know, rabbis and experts from across the spectrum who said anywhere from two to right before you get married was a valid response. Um, she said basically exactly. one of the approaches was if you do it younger before it gets weird and they sort of have the information before they start feeling like all awkward about these things. I do have a friend that the parents waited very late and when they tried to raise the topic, the friend was like, la, 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 I don't want to talk to you. Like, so that, like, in my mind, that sort of, I felt like there was a point where it could get too late, where it gets so awkward. And what I said to them was like this. These are private parts. They are, you know, and there's nothing wrong with them. Um, but right. because they're private, um, we don't show them in public and we don't talk about them in public settings. While we're in a private situation, whatever questions you have, you can always feel free to ask me or daddy and never feel embarrassed I, like that. Absolutely. I think the key is, number one, to say that's a great question and to yeah. make the child feel good about asking a good question. Yeah. And then you answer it in a way that's, you know, appropriate for the age of the child. Right. All right. Yeah. You know, we said um, we said that we were going to uh, run out of time um, <laughs> <laughs> with just one session of talking. Do you know that I quote you all the time in one of my talks, Wendy, before we go? Um, really? When, 
I do. Um, I'm yeah. so honored. Uh, are you surprised? Um, yeah, in my uh, myths and misconceptions about Orthodox Jews talk, um, people don't believe me when I say that. Um, people just assume that like all Orthodox men are rabbis, just sort of like in a casual, without thinking about way. And when you wrote um, Girls Gone Mild, or I guess it has a new name now, um, The Good Girl Revolution, um, oh, Newsweek gave yeah. your husband smicha, they ordained your husband, and you wrote this fabulous letter to the editor about, you know, he's the first person to be ordained by, by Newsweek, some in the mirror, some Yeshiva University. <laughs> And your husband is the first from uh, from Newsweek. So um, I wrote I wrote that letter for you because I know you have such a good sense of humor. You would appreciate it. No, it's but it's fabulous be, because you know, a lot be of times I try people, to tell people um, about these um, you know misunderstandings people have just in casual ways, yeah. like on this show on Fox, the Mindy Project. The main character is walking through the subway, and a guy with like the glue on beard and glue on pants and the hat walks by, and she's like, "Hey, out of my way, Rabbi." It's just sort of in this very, like, without giving it too much thought about what does this mean or what do these, you know, different external, you know, signals um, signify. People just sort of paint with a broad brush. So um, I appreciate, uh, you know, you're not just being this uh, powerful voice about modesty and success, but also you're a tremendous example um, of an Orthodox Jewish woman who, you know, has um, had a, a beautiful career, uh, changed a lot of lives, a really strong voice. Um, so... It's always great Aww, to be able to you. point to you. Thank you so much, Allison. I could say the same of you. And oh, to be fair to you. other people, though, I have to say, even my three-year-old daughter, when she was going to the Masa Bakery, she yeah. took the bus. She said that the driver was a rabbi because he had a, you know, a kippah and, and a hat. And I think a lot of, it's confusing to a lot of people. For sure. No. But yeah, we're still confused, too. 100%. She called it the rabbi bus. The rabbi anyway. bus. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and um, you're already invited back for a second a second show. And um, I know we have, have a lot a to talk about. Certain it seems. Okay. Have a great day. Take care, Allison. Thanks so bye. much. Bye bye. And that was Wendy Shalit of A Return to Modesty, A Good Girl Revolution. She's been published all over the place. You should check her out if you have not heard her before. Um, always a pleasure speaking to her, and uh, be sure to tune in next week, same time, same place. See you soon. <laughs>